Hello, and welcome to Investigative Postcast, a new podcast from Investigative Post. I'm Jim Heaney, editor of Investigative Post, a nonprofit investigative reporting center based in Buffalo. In this week's episode, I speak with Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post. She's keynote speaker at our annual gala dinner October 19th. Margaret was editor-in-chief of the Buffalo News and public editor at the New York Times before joining the Post this spring. Welcome to the podcast, Margaret. Thanks, Jim. Good to be with you. By way of full disclosure, uh, I should probably say that uh, you and I, I worked with and for you for 25 years at the Buffalo News. That's um, true. It seems like, a, seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? It seems like a lifetime ago, and it also feels like yesterday, so I'm not yeah. sure which one of those it is. Yeah, all right. So you left the news uh, how many years ago, four years? It was about a little over four years ago, yep. Okay. So you left to become public editor of the New York Times, which is a pretty good gig, uh, but you, you wound up moving on. Uh, why, did you, uh, why did you forsake the New York Times for the Washington Post? Well, the the public editor gig at the New York Times is always a term-limited one, so I knew that going into it, and I basically served out my term. I was asked to stay for another couple of years, but I felt like I had done what I could do there. Uh, I felt like I had done good work, and I was happy with it, and it's also, uh, I had another opportunity, I had a number of different opportunities, um, but certainly one at the Washington Post that I was excited about, and i I just felt like the job at the Times had run its course, although I was certainly honored to do it and definitely flattered to be asked to stay. Um, I imagine it, it must have been an uncomfortable job at times because you're, in a sense, you're almost like internal affairs at what a lot of people consider to be the greatest newspaper in the world. So was it, was it uh, an, an uncomfortable existence at times? It definitely was. You know, you are there to represent the reader, which sounds kind of easy, but in doing that, you are holding the New York Times accountable to its own standards. So that can be tough. You know, if they're doing things that are questionable or out of line and the readers are questioning it, you have to go to the journalists or usually the leadership and really challenge them on what's been printed or what their practices are. And sometimes that can be very uncomfortable. I mean, I, I wrote a lot about anonymous sources. They were pretty defensive about that, um, although I'm not a uh, complete zealot about that. I think you need that sometimes, but the Times tends to overdo it or, or has. And then there were all kinds of different things that came up in the moment that, um, you know, I did, I think I was pretty tough on them. I think the readers appreciated that, and I'm not sure the journalists always did. So you left the Times and joined the New York or the Washington Post. How, how did you end up at the Post? Well, I ended up at the Post because I know the editor, Marty Barron, and now everybody knows the editor, Marty <laughs> oh, Barron. Oh, yeah. Because he's, a, he's a movie star, isn't he? He's a, well, he, his character is a movie star. For anyone who's seen Spotlight, the editor of the Boston Globe, who's portrayed by Lee Schreiber, is Marty Barron. Well, Marty Barron, after a great career at the Boston Globe and elsewhere, came to become the editor of the Washington Post, and I had met Marty over the years 
I was particularly interested in the Washington Post because of a few things. First of all, the opportunity to work for, for Marty, who was a great editor, um, to be at the Post at a very interesting time because Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is the owner of the Post now, and he's pouring money into trying to make this digital model work. So it's very interesting from that point of view. And the Post is just a paper that I've admired for a long time. I I went to college in Washington at Georgetown. Um, I've followed the journalists here, and uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I meet people every day who I've read and followed for years and have admired. So it's a great shop and a great newsroom, and uh, it's pretty thrilling to be here, especially at the time of a national election. To be in Washington, is um, there's a lot of action. So you're the media columnist. What what exactly does a media columnist uh, at the Washington Post write about, or what's what's your well, kind I cover, of scope? Well, I cover I. I write um, an opinion column, so I get to, uh, I'm not just a straight down the line news reporter, I'm, I'm charged with having an opinion, and I write about issues like how the news media is doing its job, um, you know, press rights, I write a lot about the digital transformation of media and really of the culture. So I have a pretty widespread um, subject area, but all having to do with how we communicate and how, um, the dig again, how the digital transformation is affecting our lives and, and our journalism. Now, it's been a long time since you were a working reporter. Um, and uh, I imagine, you know, you were you were editor in chief of the news. You were public editor at the uh, at the Times, and you're uh, and you're kind of a working stiff again in terms of you know working in the trenches, working in the main newsroom, having a boss to answer to. Um, uh, what what the, what has that transition been like at kind of a personal and professional level? So the transition really came more from being the editor. Of the the you know main editor the editor in chief of the of the Buffalo News the biggest transition was to the job of public editor at the Times because even though it has the title of public editor it's really a writing job I mean my job as I saw it was to write columns and blog posts about what I was doing about those things we just talked about the challenging of the journalists there and the the reader's concerns and so on. So there, I wasn't really editing anyone else, and I really wasn't editing anyone at all. I don't know particularly why they call it public editor, but it is a it writing sounds job. It, yeah, it, it sounds, sounds good. good, and it sounds better than the alternative, which is the word ombudswoman, which I'm not really <laughs> fond of. So yeah, I was happy to be, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. mouthful. So the, the big change came when I went from supervising a newsroom, which at one point was 200 people, uh, to really just you know, essentially supervising an assistant at the uh, at the New York Times, and now I have no one to supervise except myself, uh, which can be challenging as well. <laughs> now, how, how did your time at the news um, prepare you for kind of life after the news at the Post and at the Times? I feel like, especially when I went to New York. I, I felt extremely well prepared, I mean, more so than, than you would think. You might think, oh, you know, I've been in Buffalo a long time. Uh, you're going to be daunted by what's happening in, in New York City and at this big paper. But in fact, I felt like I had a fantastic foundation because I'd been 
you know, in various roles, reporter, columnist, various kinds of editors at the Buffalo News. And the truth is newsrooms are very similar to each other in the, their psychology and in, even in their structure. So when I got there, I really felt very confident. I felt like I had honed my judgment at the in Buffalo and at the news, and I felt really capable of making the kinds of calls that I needed to make. Um, and I actually also think that it was good to be an outsider. I wasn't part of that East Coast, you know, sort of elite corridor. Mm -hmm. I was a little bit more from, um, you know, real America, if you will. Almost, so almost the Midwest, yeah. <laughs> almost the gateway. We like to think of Buffalo as the gateway to the Midwest. But, um, you know, I thought that really that little bit of outsiderness actually served me really well. And I think just the values that I um that I learned growing up in the Buffalo area and being at the paper for a long time are ones that, you know, have, have kind of stayed with me and that I, I feel really good about. Now you've been at the post what, going on six months now? Um yeah, and, yep. and you've already written your share of pretty provocative um pieces, uh, mm -hmm. Pardon, Pardon Snowden, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, why don't you talk a bit about the maybe a couple of stories that uh, or columns that you uh, you think have been particularly noteworthy or have had a particular uh, impact? So one of them, uh, the one that you mentioned in which um, the Washington Post editorial board had actually gone uh, out on a limb a little bit and said that they thought that Snowden, Edward Snowden, the the leaker of the um, National Security Agency information that, you know, ended up bringing a Pulitzer Prize for public service to the Washington Post, the Washington Post editorial board said that he absolutely should not be pardoned by Obama. And I, I, I disagree That's with that. That's gratitude for you, huh? <laughs> That's gratitude for you, right. Um, okay. So, you know, I wrote in opposition to that, although I didn't really, I wasn't arguing with the editorial board so much. I was just taking the position that um, Snowden had done on balance a public service. So that actually got a lot of reaction, both pro and con. Some people really thanked me for it and some people told me I was evil and, you know, should be locked up. Um so that got a lot of reaction. I've been writing a lot about the way the cable news networks have covered uh Donald Trump, which in my opinion and the opinion of others, of course, is that they've overcovered him, especially during the prime primary, and covered him to too, in, an, in too uncritical a way, so that they actually gave his candidacy an incredible boost, and he might not be where he is today if it weren't for all that free publicity. So I've written a bunch of pretty tough pieces about that. Most recently, just this week, I wrote about the CNN um, president or CEO, whose name is Jeff Zucker, and I kind of connected him to his time. Zucker used to be the head of NBC, at the time when Trump's reality show, The Apprentice, was coming along. So Zucker really helped Trump uh, become a reality TV star, benefited from the ratings that Trump is able to drive so well, and then basically did the same thing at CNN, both promoted Trump and benefited from his ability, his unbelievable ability to drive ratings. So I certainly faulted him, not mm -hmm. so much for what he did at NBC, which after all was entertainment, but this is supposed to be journalism, and I thought that he 
you know, went a little too far, well, went way too far yeah. in giving Trump this unbelievable platform. Yeah, not a not a great legacy for 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 a news for a newsman. Right. Um so media in the age of Trump, what are the challenges and and cable aside, just how good of a job is the press doing handling Trump and and all the ripple effects that flow from his his candidacy? Well, in general, I think early on the press or the media, you know, and it's very hard to paint with such a broad brush, but we'll try, um, you know, was too unquestioning. And they kind of thought that he was this entertaining sideshow and that it wasn't going to go anywhere and really gave him an awful lot of help in achieving this prominence. More recently, and I would say in the past few months, the press has really toughened up on Trump. The Post, the Washington Post, has done really important reporting about his charitable giving. There's a guy named David Farenfold who's been doing amazing work about the Trump Foundation, and it's very impressive. Uh, the New York Times, of course, just this past weekend, did a great piece about Trump's um, tax returns which were given to them, a piece of them was given to them anonymously, and they were able to develop it into a really important story. So I think there's been a lot of good reporting, and I think especially months ago there was a lot of um, free free advertising that was given out willy-nilly. All right. Uh, on a more personal level, uh, born in Lackawanna, uh, a, Buffalo, a Buffalo native, uh, and uh, you know you spent some time in uh, what Washington and Chicago uh, at college, but you you uh, you moved away uh, in your 50s and have lived in uh, two very different places. Uh, what's contrast life in Buffalo with that of New York and, and now uh, Washington? Well, when I moved from Buffalo to New York, I felt at home immediately because I'd been spending quite a bit of time there doing different things. And I really love New York. It's um, it's very vibrant, and I felt like I don't know. It didn't. There was no real adjustment for me. My daughter was at was at NYU, so she was there. My son was in law school in Boston, so he was close by. I have a niece in New York. It, you know, I just I started teaching at Columbia University very quickly, and I just felt like I found uh, my community, and I felt really comfortable there. At you also the lived time, in a really neat part of Manhattan. You were, what, a block from uh, from Central Park? I mean, Right. I, I lived on the Upper sweet. West Side, and so that was really nice because I was able to get to work quickly but also be near an Olmstead Park, which I always have lived near, whether uh, South Park or Delaware Park and then Central Park. So um, it, was, it was a surprisingly easy transition for me. Um, at the same time, I always miss Buffalo, and I come to Buffalo a fair amount. My son lives there now, and my brother lives there, and I, you know, I'm very dug in in Buffalo, and I always get there for holidays and so on. So I feel like I still am deeply connected. The transition to Washington is still pretty new. It's um, it's a much different city, and I'm adjusting. I mean, it hasn't been the easiest adjustment. I mean, nothing. There's nothing negative about it. It's just that I guess uprooting myself twice is uh, gets to be a little bit difficult at uh, my advanced age. <laughs> You're younger than I am. You can't you can't have advanced age in this discussion. Well, that's, that's true. <laughs> uh, 
right, one final question. You're you're you'll be our uh you'll be our uh, our speaker at our our keynote speaker at our uh, gala dinner on October 19th and you're going to talk about the state of investigative reporting. Why don't you give us just a, a taste of what uh, of what's on your mind with regards to that? Well, I think that local investigative reporting is extremely important. I feel passionate about it and and I have for many years. I I'm proud that I set up the first investigative team at the Buffalo News and um, certainly was very proud of the work you did at the News, Jim, and, and impressed with what you're doing now. I think it's threatened. I think local investigative reporting is threatened throughout the country and really needs to be defended and needs to be protected. So I'm going to talk about the importance of it and the ways that it needs to um, to be cared for going forward. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you on the 19th. And, I'm looking uh, wanna, forward to it, too. Thank you for taking time out to talk to us, and um, take care. See you soon. You can hear Margaret speak at her annual gala dinner October 19th by ordering tickets online at investigativepost.org. That's where you can find our previous podcasts as well. Thanks for listening.